This is William Fink, and this is Christagenia.org. It is Friday, December 20th, 2013. Tomorrow's the first day of winter, shortest day of the year. I can't wait until the days start getting longer again. It, it seems in, at this time of year, these programs are in the middle of the night, especially since I've taken to getting up at 5 a.m., and, and in the summertime, they're, they're too early, so I, I don't know. I, that's just the change in seasons, I guess. I'm not accustomed to it after 53 years. A certain joker. I have to address this, and I really don't want to. It's, I played a song tonight um, leading up to this program. I played some music. Most nights, and and it's called Stuck in the Middle of You, and it's clowns to the left of me and jokers to the right, and and this is why I played that song. I'll probably be playing it more often. A certain joker who calls himself an Aryan Nation's pastor has also been claiming that I do not believe in a Satan. Imagine that. I guess he's never read any of the papers on my website. Anyone who actually reads or listens to my work would know immediately that he is a liar. It is too bad that he himself does not have the backbone to identify some of the real Satans who are claiming to be Christian identity pastors. He'd rather suck up to them. There's something wrong with this picture. He'd rather placate and, 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 and whitewash them. While I reject the notions of what I'll call here Catharist dualism. The Cathars were um, famous dualists from the 13th century in southern France, right? But, well, evidently there's still some Cathars around and some Cathars have come into Christian identity. I reject his notions of Catharist dualism but I certainly believe that there are now many Satans. And that is what the scripture teaches. None of those Satans, however, are in heaven. And that is what offends this turkey in spite of the scripture. The clown should spend more time reading and listening than he spends running his mouth and lying about people. And that's all I'll say about that for now. Presenting Acts chapter 2 here two weeks ago, where Paul was said to have addressed the crowd in Jerusalem, in Hebrew. We spoke a little about Aramaic and Hebrew. Last week, just prior to our Open Lines program, I received a kindly message from a dear sister in England. And she had also asked a short question about the speech of Christ. Not being able to listen to the live program since it's in the middle of the night over there, right? She hoped I could read it, but the flow of the program last last Sunday, it was last Saturday's program, the flow of the program really didn't offer an opportunity, so I will read her, her question here. She asks, Yahshua's last word was tetelestahi, or, or tetelestahi, or teteleste, depending on how you want to pronounce the, the Greek. I would say to Telestahi, meaning it is finished. But did he speak that utterance in Greek or Aramaic? 
do we know? And she goes on to say, elsewhere it is written that just prior to that, he cried out in Aramaic, or in Hebrew is what is written, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, Mark 15.34. And, and, and this is, you know, this, that there is more propaganda over what language Christ and the apostles spoke. It's, it's incredible. I would feel it safe to imagine that because the apostles all took care to point out that certain words and phrases were uttered in Hebrew, and you could consider it Aramaic if you like, they called it Hebrew, because they pointed out that certain words and phrases were spoken in Hebrew, all of the other words of Christ that they recorded must have been spoken in Greek. Otherwise... Why would they at all mention any occasions when he spoke in Hebrew? Greek was the lingua franca of the time. And archaeologists, and, and I use that sense in the broad, in, in the broad sense I use that term because archaeology originally meant the study of ancient documents. Archaeologists have recently and correctly been pointing out that there must have been, that there must have even been a Palestinian or Hebrew sub-dialect of Koine Greek, where indeed many Hebraisms occur commonly, they, that they appear commonly. Such Hebraisms are found in the Gospels also. There are Hebraisms in Mark and Matthew. There are even Hebraisms in Luke. And Luke was a Greek, but Luke had compiled his gospel from collected records and copied them evidently as he was supplied with them, Hebraisms and all. Hebraisms are a common, Hebraisms are features common to the Hebrew language which appear in another language. In this instance, in, in, in related to the New Testament, that other language is Greek. Such Hebraisms may be that they may be Hebrew idioms that were a novelty in Greek, peculiar to, to Hebrew speakers, or they could be represented by the Hebrew habit of parallelism, which is very common in the New Testament, where one object is described twice using different words or phrases, like calling Yahweh God and Father, that, that's a real brief form of a parallelism. Is he God or is he our Father? Well, he's both, of course. That's why he's God and Father. Now, many assert that these Hebraisms somehow proved that there was an original Hebrew or Aramaic text that the Greek was derived from, that assertion is ridiculous. Rather, the Hebraisms prove that the New Testament was written in Greek by people, by men, who had their first language as Hebrew. They learned the Greek grammar and, and Greek vocabulary, but their idiom remained Hebrew. Their first language was Hebrew. Therefore, they brought their Hebrew habits into the Greek writing. It, it's that simple. All of the manuscript evidence proves beyond doubt 
and all of the internal evidence in the New Testament proves beyond doubt to anyone who does not have an agenda that the original language of Christ and the, New T- and, and the apostles may have been Hebrew, but they wrote the Gospels and spoke commonly in Greek. And their exchanges were, for the most part, in Greek. Because most of the people at the time, and I say most because I don't know if it's all, but most of the people at the time certainly knew Greek. Greek inscriptions were the prevalent, the Greek language was the prevalent language on all the public inscriptions of Roman Judea. Beyond doubt. Buildings with plaques, countless buildings with plaques have have contained plaques written in the Greek language. Coins, countless coins, some coins do have Hebrew letters on them on one side and Greek on the other. The preponderance of coins from the Levant in, in Roman Judea have Greek inscriptions. Official business was done in Greek, trade, merchandise, it was all in Greek. Greek was the language. Greek was the language on the city streets in Rome. Latin was the language of the Roman military and government. With this, the book of Acts, chapter 23. In our presentation of Acts chapter 21, we illustrated just how politically Volatile the Judean population was at this time, which is 57 AD. And how prone they were to riot, especially in defense of their religious exclusivity. The Judeans had been pressured by the Romans on several occasions over the decades, the decades from Tiberius to Nero, about 60 years to add elements of Roman paganism and emperor worship to their temple and religious life. And they had thus far, for the most part, avoided doing so, either by political means or by civil disobedience and threats of insurrection. From the pages of Josephus we saw how, not long before this very time of Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, 10,000 Judeans were killed on a feast day, in a tumult which was sparked by a single act of profanity on the part of one Roman soldier, an act which was seen by the masses as an insult to their nation and their religion. It is illustrative of the tensions which existed between the Judeans and the Romans. Flavius Josephus later saw this as the signal event building up to the revolt against Rome and the beginning of the end for Jerusalem. Little did he know that it was long ago prophesied in the Hebrew scripture that such a thing would happen, but for a different reason. It was truly the result of the rejection rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah of Israel. Yahweh God is indeed the author of history, although he uses means by which to accomplish his will that are not often perceived by man. 
presenting Acts chapter 22, along with the last chapter, the last paragraph, I'm sorry, of Acts 21, where Paul was arrested, it was seen that he was confused for a leader of the Sicarii, or assassins, by the Roman commander. We also saw from the pages of Josephus that these Sicarii were bands of robbers who were raiding the crowds at feasts, looting, and often even killing their targets. The Sicarii were a threat from before this time, and up until Festus came to the office of procurator of Judea, a couple of years afterwards. Festus first appears in Acts chapter 24. From these events, which are described by Josephus, it is also quite clear that the circumstances existing in Judea at this very time coincide very well with the events and the state of Judea which Luke portrays here in the book of Acts. Concerning Acts chapter 21, verse 38, there is something in Josephus written about an event which occurred around this same time, which is what which very much explains the reason for that first question which the Roman commander had asked of Paul, where he said, Then you are not the Egyptian who was before these days making an upset and leading out into the desert 4,000 men of the assassins, or the Sicarii, right? We did not present this in our last segment of Acts, and we could have. I left it out on purpose. We shall do it here. From Antiquities of the Judeans, Book 20, Chapter 8. Writing about a time towards the end of the procurator, the, the procuratorship of Felix, which is where we are at here in Acts chapters 21 through 24. Josephus gives the following account right after describing that Jerusalem was filled with all sorts of impiety on account of the deeds of Felix. And Josephus says that, moreover, there came out of Egypt about this time to Jerusalem one that said he was a prophet and advised the multitude of the common people to go along with him to the Mount of Olives. As it was called, which lay opposite the city and at the distance of about half a mile. So, so by that we see what Luke and, and the other gospel writers meant by a Sabbath day's journey. He said further, that he would show them from there how, at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall down. And he promised them that he would procure them an entrance into the city through those walls, when they had fallen down. So we see the gates were well guarded, right? Now when Felix was informed of these things, he ordered his soldiers to take their weapons, and came against them with a great number of horsemen and footmen, from Jerusalem, and attacked the Egyptian and the people that were with him. He also slew four hundred of them and took two hundred alive. And with this it is evident that the arrest of Paul must have taken place, as this particular Egyptian was known to the Judeans and Romans, but before the Egyptian and his cult of followers were actually destroyed, or at least so it seems.
The history of Josephus is invaluable so far as helping us to understand the Judea of the New Testament period and the important developments which formed the Roman province of Judea leading up to that period. And it also fully corroborates many of the historic statements in the scriptures. It's not a fifth It's not a fifth gospel, but it certainly is as valuable in many respects. Paul was arrested when some of the Judeans who had known him from Asia, from Ephesus in particular, spotted him in a temple and falsely accused him of defiling it by bringing uncircumcised men into it. Such an act would indeed be perceived as another affront to the Judean religion, and therefore, with those accusations causing a disturbance, Paul's life certainly seems to have been saved upon the intervention of the Romans and his subsequent arrest. The Roman commander later in this chapter says that himself. The Roman commander, learning that Paul was not one of the robbers, was not that Egyptian, was at odds with himself over what Paul may have done and permitted him to address the crowd. Luke portrays that address as having been abruptly terminated at the point where Paul mentions a proclamation of the gospel to the other nations. And with the crowd becoming disturbed once again, Paul's address to the people was interrupted at that point. With this account, Luke seems to portray the violation of their religious exclusivity as being that part of Paul's speech to which the Judeans objected most vehemently. We may want to evaluate this situation at greater depth. For the gifts and the covenants of God are exclusively with the children of Israel. Therefore, from their own perspective... The Judeans certainly had a right to protest the violation of their religious exclusivity. However, not all of the Judeans were of Israel. In fact, hardly any of the Judeans may have been of Israel by this time. Many of them already being Christians. As Paul had by this time already explained in his epistle to the Romans, <coughs> which was written several months beforehand, the gifts and covenants of God are not exclusive to Israel in the religious or civil senses, as the Judeans had evidently presumed. Rather, they are exclusive in a national racial sense. To the seed of the people of the ancient nation of Israel, and not to the Edomites. Furthermore, the Judeans clearly did not understand that the distant nations to which Paul referred were indeed the nations of anciently dispersed Israel, as even Paul calls that a mystery in several of his epistles, namely those to the Ephesians and the Colossians. This is why Paul had also been teaching in his epistles that the gifts of God were not to those of the law, but to those of the promise. 
the promise was to Abraham's seed. Evidently, those of the law weren't all counted for Abraham's seed. And, of course, the Canaanites and the Edomites would not be. The Judeans presumed their righteousness by a keeping of the law. But the greater part of true Israel had long been dispersed and were pagan and had discarded the law. Yet they were still the children of the inviolable promises and the calling of Yahweh. At this point in history, there is a very unique situation. The society of Europe and the Near East consisted of many tribes descended from the other Genesis 10 nations. And if any of those people are still amongst us, they are no longer distinguishable. However, they also consisted of many of the long dispersed tribes of the children of Israel. Tribes which had been migrating into Europe since the time of the Exodus and even before that. At the same time, Judea had been overrun by the Edomites and other Canaanites after the deportations of Israel. And those people were all forced into Judaism in the 2nd century BC by the remnant which returned to Jerusalem, which had grown quite powerful by the time of the Maccabees. Therefore, in Judea, many people, many of the perceived people of God were actually the eternal enemies of God. The majority of them were certainly not of the true remnant of Judah, from which came Christ and the apostles. The dispersed children of Israel represented in part by Romans, Dorians, Germans, Scythians, Phoenicians, and Parthians had indeed come to dominate the Adamic Oikumene in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham described explicitly by Paul in Romans chapter 4. And they were the intended recipients of the gospel message from the beginning. While the Edomites and Canaanites who comprised much of the population of Judea and who had adopted what is now called Judaism were forever accursed. The law was never going to save them. This is why Judaism in its true form in the Talmud is so absolutely antithetical to God and Christ. Yet Paul's hope, which he expressed in chapter 9 of his epistle to the Romans, some months before he arrived in Judea for this very Pentecost, was to be able to reach any true Israelite Judeans who remained. We have already seen in these late chapters of Acts that many of those who had already accepted the Ebionite form of Judaism had nevertheless rejected Paul. That form of Judaism was actually somewhere between 
or, or I'm sorry, that form of Christianity, you could call it a form of Judaism, you could call it a form of Christianity, it was lost somewhere between Judaism and Christianity. Paul's speech in Acts chapter 22 and his epistle to the Hebrews written shortly after the events that are recorded here represent his attempts to reach his true Hebrew kinsmen. One more public defense of Christianity by Paul in Judea is recorded later in Acts where he appears before Herod Agrippa II over two years after his arrest and just before he is sent to Rome. The Roman commander, back to the reality of the moment of Acts chapter 23, the Roman commander, who is probably uneducated in the religious disputes of the Judeans, planned on beating the truth out of Paul to find out why he caused such a tumult. Yet he was hindered upon learning that Paul was a Roman citizen. He could not beat the truth out of him. So he had to find another way to sort the incident out. Now, in spite of what may be perceived today as barbarous tactics, the Roman commander actually must have been a caring and prudent man, as the events described in chapter 23 of Acts also reveal. That is where we left off, at the end of Acts chapter 22, and here is the last verse of that chapter, which, if I were making the chapter divisions would have been the first verse of Acts 23. And on the next day, which was the day after his arrest, wishing to know with certainty why he, meaning Paul, was accused by the Judeans, he, the commander, released him and ordered the high priests and all the council to gather together. And bringing down Paul, he stood before them. Now, now there's a translation note here. The majority text says, released him from the bonds, where the King James has from his bands. And, and Luke had already recorded in Acts 22 that the commander feared on account of his having bound Paul, for it was unlawful to bind a Roman citizen who had been convicted of a crime. So we see a wayward interpolation in the King James Version. Notice that the reference to the high priests is plural, as it also often was in the Gospels and earlier in the book of Acts. There may have been several former high priests here at this very time, since Herod Agrippa II was given charge by the Romans over the affairs of the temple, and, as his predecessors had often done, he often changed the occupant of the office of high priest for political reasons. You're out and, and you're in. That guy over there, we're going to give him the job. In the Gospels, we see that there were current and former high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. And that those who held the office formerly continued to bear the title. John, the Apostle John, in a statement which seems to be rather sarcastic, even said of Caiaphas in chapter 11 of his gospel, that he was high priest that same year. And I say it's sarcastic because John, of course, had to have known that according to the law of God, the office of high priest 
is a lifetime appointment. With this, we shall commence with Acts chapter 23, with verse 1. And Paul, staring at the council, the council which the commander ordered to be put together from the Judeans, and Paul, staring at the council, said, Men, brethren, I have lived as a free citizen with all good conscience before Yahweh unto this day. Now we should not imagine that Paul means to consider all of those present to be brethren. But rather, his concern is with those who are his brethren. Paul had already explained in both his epistle to the Romans and in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, that only some of the people in Judea were truly his kinsmen according to the flesh, as he said in Romans 9.3. This is why it's important to understand precisely when Paul's epistles were written, or at least his seven early epistles before he went into captivity as a prisoner in Rome. He wrote seven epistles before he got to Rome. It's important to understand when they were written so that we could understand what Paul's understanding was as these events in Acts transpired. Because as, as we have already demonstrated several times in this series, and, and as we should know from our own life, lives and our own studies, that our beliefs and our persuasion, our faith evolves as we learn more. And, and you may renounce the Bible student that you were ten years ago or five years ago with the understanding you had at that time. We all have a transition as we study, if indeed we study. We pointed out that the apostles certainly had a transition by studying the scriptures in the context of the gospel of Christ and realizing what it is they should be doing and what it is they should no longer be doing. And, and that transition is fully evident in Acts chapter 11, in Acts chapter 15, here in these later chapter of Acts. The book of Acts records a religious transition from the rituals of the Old Testament to the faith in Christ in the New Testament, primarily, among other things. Paul had already said that only some of the people in Judea were his kinsmen according to the flesh and that satanic men ruled over the temple of Jerusalem. He said that in his second epistle to the Thessalonians which was written during Paul's sojourn in Corinth recorded in Acts chapter 18. We'll get back to that epistle shortly. Acts 23.2 And the high priest Hananias commanding those standing by him to strike his mouth commanded, I'm sorry, those standing by him to strike his mouth. Then Paul said to him, Yahweh is about to strike you, you whitened wall. 
that you sit judging me according to the law, and transgressing the law, you order me to be struck? And the fulfillment of this warning which Paul gives to the high priest seems to be witnessed in the death of that Ananias which is recorded by Josephus in Wars of the Judeans. Book 2, lines 441 and 442, or Book 2, chapter 17, part 9, where Hananias, with his brother, having hid from robbers in an aqueduct, is found and is slain by them. Ananus, who slew the apostle James in 62 AD, is the son of this same Hananias. They actually had the same name, different forms of the same name, Hananias, Ananias, Ananus. This elder Hananias was slain while Florus was procurator, which was about 64 AD, seven years after this time. As we have already often explained that Paul's captivity here began in 57 AD, two years before the end of the procuratorship of Felix. We know that from Acts 24.7. Josephus discusses this Hananias, this high priest right here, Josephus discusses him at length in his Antiquities in Book 20. Part of that discussion we presented along with Acts chapter 4 in this series of presentations on the book of Acts in order to show that these Sadducees indeed functioned as crime lords in Judea. And indeed they did. Verse 4. And they standing by said, Do you rebuke the high priest of God? And Paul said, I knew not, brethren, that he is a high priest. For it is written that you shall not speak badly of a ruler of the people. And that's something that should be discussed. First, there being so many men who held the office of high priest during this period, it is no wonder that Paul, being absent from Judea for most of his ministry, did not recognize this man, even though he was quite illustrious, or, or maybe perhaps I should say infamous, in Jerusalem. Paul was absent from Jerusalem for most of his time. Here Paul quoted from Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. For it is written that you shall not speak badly of a ruler of the people. And the Greek of Acts agrees entirely with the Greek of the Septuagint in this passage. As do most of the Old Testament citations recorded by Luke. Yet the beginning of Exodus 22:28 in the King James Version reads, Thou shalt not revile the gods, where the Hebrew word Elohim, Strong's Hebrew number 430, would be better rendered as judges. And the Septuagint Greek has gods there also. Even though this particular high priest is indeed wicked, Paul agrees with the letter of the law. 
This admonition in the law is ignored by most Christians today, even by me, and even those who profess to honor the Old Testament law often do so. It evidently stands no matter how vile the particular ruler happens to be. Think White House. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 20. Curse not the king, no, not in thy thought, and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which has wings shall tell the matter. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13. You must be obedient to every authority created by mankind on account of the prince. Whether to kings as if being superior, or to governors as if being sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, but for the praise of those doing good. Because thusly is the will of Yahweh, doing good to muzzle the ignorance of foolish men, as free men yet not as if having freedom for a cover for evil, but as servants of Yahweh. While as Christians we readily despise the ignoble men who have risen to rule over us, we too easily lose sight of the fact that evil rulers are appointed by God as a punishment for sinners. Because Israel rejected Yahweh as their king, and they still suffer for that very reason. That's the way it is. It's sort of like take your chastisement like a man. Verse 6, Acts 23. Then Paul, perceiving that the one part are of the Sadducees, but the other part of the Pharisees, cried out in the council, Men, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. Now, now the King James and the majority text have son of a Pharisee there. All the other, most of the other codices have Pharisees, a son of Pharisees. Concerning hope and resurrection of the dead, am I judged? And upon his saying this, there came a discord among the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For indeed, the Sadducees say that there is not to be a resurrection. Nor are there messengers or angels, nor a spirit. But Pharisees confess both things. Now sometimes the simplest statements in a person's language often tell us a lot. When we give them close enough attention. Here where the resurrection and messengers nor a spirit, or angels nor a spirit, are considered to be both things. It is evident that messengers or angels and spirits were considered together to be on one part of these two ideas. And therefore, messengers or angels could indeed be spirits even though it is clear that often in Scripture they could also simply be people. In Acts 
12:15. Where after Peter's having been arrested, the people who were at the home of Mark could not conceive that it could have been Peter himself who was at the door. They are recorded as having exclaimed, It is his angel. Perhaps imagining Peter to have been dead. Therefore we see two witnesses in Acts that these early Christians associated angels with spirit beings. They can't be tossed aside. Verse 9. And there came a great cry and some of the scribes from the part of the Pharisees Arise and contended, saying, We find nothing evil in this man, even if a spirit or messenger spoke to him. A spirit or angel spoke to him. The Novum Testamentum Greca punctuates the last clause of verse 9 as a question, where the phrase, I day, would have to be rendered as, What if? rather than with the more literally correct exclamation, even if. The majority text has the clause to read, and if a spirit or messenger spoke to him, we should not fight against God. None of the ancient codices have that interpolation, but the King James Version reflects that reading. The Sadducees, were moral relativists who denied everything spiritual and also denied the hand of God in the world and in the lives of men. They stopped short of denying God himself. At that time, they would have lost all credibility. According to Josephus, the Sadducees did not believe in any life at all beyond this physical world, where in Antiquities, Book 18, he states... But the doctrine of, of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies. Josephus describes the beliefs, or rather the denials, of the Sadducees at length in that book, and also in book two of his Wars of the Judeans, where he says of them there, book two, chapter eight, part 14, or book two from line 164, and I quote, but the Sadducees are those who compose the second order, after the Pharisees, he described them first, and take away fate entirely. Now let me say that Josephus understood fate as being a man's life as orchestrated by God, not by luck. And suppose that God is not concerned at our doing or not doing what is evil. And they say, that to act what is good or what is evil is it men's own choice, and that the one or the other belongs so to everyone, that they may act as they please. They also take away the belief of the immortal duration of the soul and the punishments and rewards in Hades, which was a legitimate Old Testament belief. Moreover, the Pharisees are friendly to one another, and are for the exercise of concord and regard for the public. But the behavior of the Sadducees one toward another is in some degree wild. 
and their conduct with those who were of their own party is as barbarous as if they were strangers to them. They sound like Jewish faggots from Greenwich Village, right? And this is what I had to say concerning the philosophic sects among the Judeans. Verse 10. And then upon there being a great discord, the commander, being fearful lest Paul would be torn apart by them, ordered the soldiers going down to snatch him from their midst and to bring him into the encampment. Paul was, of course, well aware of the differences in the basic religious principles of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and cleverly used an appeal to those principles in order to create a division between them. The Pharisees, at least not compromising these certain tenets of their faith, which were long a source of irritation between themselves and the Sadducees, would therefore not agree with the Sadducees in this matter, even though the men from the party of the Sadducees had held the office of high priest throughout this entire period, from the time of Herod all the way through to the fall of Jerusalem. It was dominated, the high priesthood was dominated by Sadducees. When we presented Acts chapter 4 some months ago, we demonstrated that the Sadducees were basically the crime lords of Judea. Holding the pretense of legitimate political appointments, they used their offices to persecute the true Levitical priests and to enrich themselves through their association with the temple and their rule over the people. Presenting Acts chapter 5, we discussed how Luke, in his records, presented the apostles as having distinguished their own race from that of the Sadducees, and that the Sadducees were almost assuredly of the stock of the Edomites. In this chapter of Acts, with their treatment of Paul of Tarsus, the nature of the Sadducees and their ready willingness to use wanton violence in order to obtain their political objectives in spite of their pretense to abide by the rule of law is fully apparent. The later murder of the Apostle James fits that same pattern. And that crime was committed by the Sadducees at an opportune moment under a cloak of legality when there was no Roman procurator present due to the sudden death of Festus. These Sadducees are the posterity of those same Sadducees who were the high priests at the crucifixion of Christ, as Josephus describes the families of Annas and Caiaphas, and how so many of their descendants had held the office of high priests during these last decades in the history of Jerusalem. The true spiritual antecedents of world Jewry without a doubt are these same Sadducees. And they and their Edomite kinsmen are in great degree the genetic forefathers of the world's Jews as well. The offspring of these same Sadducees are among us today. And it brought us events such as the Bolshevik Revolution and the destruction of Christian Europe. Now they rule America and the world as both neocons and liberals and as both so-called English or American 
businessmen or bankers, among other things. In the first century, they didn't want it revealed that they were Edomites. And today they adopt a multitude of names so that it is not generally evident that they are Jews. It is most telling that throughout the Gospel accounts, Christ is described as having dined with Pharisees, but he never had fellowship with the Sadducees, and he only addressed them when they accosted him. Earlier in our presentation of Acts, we discussed the writing of the epistles to the Thessalonians, that they were written while Paul was in Corinth during his sojourn there, which is described in Acts chapter 18. Here is part of what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll quote it from the Christogenian New Testament, where I believe it is a lot clearer from verse 3. I'll only quote verses 3 and 4. You should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come first, past tense, and the man of lawlessness been revealed, past tense, the son of destruction, he who is opposing and exalting himself above everything, present tense, said to be a god or an object of worship, and so he is seated, present perfect, in the temple of Yahweh representing himself, present tense, that he is a God. Most commentators, foolishly I may add, take this as a prophecy of the future. However, Paul is telling us that the apostasy had already come and that the man of lawlessness had already been revealed, the son of destruction, and that he was already sitting in the temple of Yahweh imagining for himself to be a god. Now while Paul here wrote in the singular person, he must have been referring to the children of Esau collectively, since the Edomites were in control of Judea at this time, and since Paul had, by this time, already written his epistle to the Romans. So we see that he must have already had that understanding which he expresses in Romans chapter 9, where he discussed the true Israelites in Judea, the vessels of mercy. As compared to the Edomites in Judea, the vessels of destruction. The son of destruction in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 is Esau, and his offspring are the vessels of destruction of Romans chapter 9. whose obliteration is prophesied in Obadiah 1.18 and in many other scriptures. For the same reason, writing in that same epistle to the Romans, Paul foreseeing the fulfillment of the destruction of Jerusalem, which was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, 
said to the Romans that Yahweh will crush the adversary or will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And they did, just a few years later, from 65 to 70 A.D., culminating in the complete destruction of Jerusalem. The vessels of destruction are, without a doubt, found today in world Jewry, and also, to a great extent, in Catholic Southern Europe and in in the Muslim Arab world. Such is why Paul feared going to Jerusalem. Although he certainly knew that he had to go. He knew that he was going to have to face the eternal enemies of Yahweh God in the place where they are in control. A people who were congenitally evil and who could never be converted, although there were still some true Israelites yet among them. In the New Testament, they are Satan. Collectively, they're only a part of the picture, but they are Satan indeed. The synagogue of Satan of Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. Verse 11. Paul has a vision. And in the following night, the prince standing by him said, Take courage. The majority text interpolates, interpolates the name Paul here, which the King James Version did not follow. Take courage, for as you affirm the things concerning me in... Jerusalem. Thusly it is necessary also for you to affirm in Rome or to testify in Rome. In Romans chapter 15, an epistle which Paul had written no more than a few months before this very event, while he was still in the Troad, we find this from verse 23. But now, No longer having a place in these regions, meaning Greece and Anatolia, he was writing this from the Troad, and having a longing to come to you for many years. So we see that for many years, before Paul got to Rome, for many years, there was Christian assemblies in Rome. Perhaps as I journey into Spain, therefore I expect to be passing across to see you and by you to be escorted there. If, however, of you first I am somewhat satisfied. But now I travel to Jerusalem in service to the saints. This trip here. And to go on to to verse 28. Now this being accomplished, and this prophet having been assured to them, I will depart by you towards Spain. He had hoped to go to Rome and then beyond to Western Europe. Indeed, he did make it to Rome, as he had hoped, but he went as a prisoner and not as a free man, something which he could not have expected. In spite of the erroneous assertions of the British Israel adherents, Paul never made it to Spain. Verse 12. 
and day coming, the Judeans, having made a gathering, took a vow upon themselves, saying, neither to eat nor to drink until when they would kill Paul. There's a third century papyrus, P48. It has a couple of serious differences here. It seems to um, indicate that, that there was a lengthier account, whether whether it's legitimately lengthy or not is a different story. It has the words here, assistance gathering some of the, some of the Judeans, and 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 that that's obviously saying something slightly different. But apparently the words which precede the clause are illegible, according to the Novum Testamentum Grecae. All of the codices employed in these notes, all of the major great uncles, which where this passage exists, agree on the reading of this passage as it stands. P48 is just different. It would be interesting to find out why one day. I don't think we'll ever do it. Here we see that these Judeans exhibited a complete disregard for the rule of law. And whether Paul had actually committed an offense worthy of death or whether he should have a fair hearing, they didn't care. In stark contrast, Paul had written to the Romans in his epistle commending them for living by the rule of law, where he says in chapter 2 that it is they who exhibit the work of the law written in their hearts, bearing witness with their conscience and between one another, considering accusations or then defending the accused. And he wrote that months before this experience here with, with, with these Sadducees. And when he wrote to the Romans, Romans chapter 2, when he wrote those words, he clearly presents those words as a fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Israel written aforetime in Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 13. And those making this conspiracy were more than 40. Whom going to the high priest and the elders said, We have vowed a curse, or we have vowed a vow. The word is anathematizo and anathema. It's the same word. It's just a verb and a noun. Two different forms of it. We have vowed a curse upon ourselves to taste not any food until when we would kill Paul. So now you exhibit to the commander with the council how he should bring him down to you, as if being about to discern more precisely the things concerning him. But we, before his approach, are ready to slay him. It is unlikely that any of these men who had taken this vow were Pharisees. As Luke has just described a number of their scribes at this first council, as having proclaimed that we find nothing evil in this man, even if a spirit or messenger spoke to him. Therefore, it is more than likely that all of these men were Sadducees, and going to the high priests, who were also, it could be established in the pages of Josephus, who were also of the sect of the Sadducees, 
the high priests complied with them in their conspiracy. Total disregard for the law, which they claimed to uphold. The 3rd century papyrus P48 has the beginning of verse 15 to read, So now we exhort you to do this for us, the council gathering, you exhibit to the commander how he should bring him down to you. After the phrase, bring him down to you, the majority text interpolates a word for tomorrow, and the King James Version reflects that. Papyrus P48 also adds to the end of verse 15 the words, even if it should be necessary also to be killed, thereby portraying these men as being willing to die themselves, if perhaps they were also able to kill Paul, knowing that the Roman commander would be obliged to defend him. Verse 16 And the son of the sister of Paul, hearing of the ambush, coming and entering into the encampment, reported it to Paul. The language describing this man is very specific. Here this man is described as being young. And we learn that Paul had both a sister and a nephew in Jerusalem at this time. They are only mentioned this one time here. And therefore it is not clear under what circumstances they are present. While reading the Bible, we must bear in mind that there is very frequently a lot more going on in the periphery of the narrative, while the style of the biblical writers was always to focus upon the central character and the important events. There's an example, a clear example of that in Genesis chapter 13. We're in Genesis chapters 12 and 13, it only mentions Abraham and Lot and Sarah. Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. Yet we have no real idea of the extent of Abraham's wealth until we read in chapter 14 that when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants born in his own house 318. And only there do we learn that Abraham had a sizable household which was traveling along with him, although only three people were mentioned in his company in Genesis chapters 12 and 13, which are those who, which are those who were the central focus of the narrative. Christ traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem. And we hardly hear of the, the, the great crowd of women who was traveling with him, seeing to his every need until after his crucifixion when those women are mentioned in the Gospel account. The, the, the central character is always followed. And what we never, 
that there's a lot going on around that that we're, we're never told in the gospel accounts. That's and and throughout the Bible, that's very clear. We should always consider that while reading. Verse 17. And I think I'm going to get all the way to the end of verse 21 without notes. And Paul, summoning one of the centurions, said, Bring this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So then taking him, he brought him to the commander and said, The prisoner Paul, summoning me, asked for this young man to be brought to you, having something to say to you. And the commander taking his hand and withdrawing privately asked, What is it which you have to report to me? And he said that the Judeans contrived for which to ask you that tomorrow you may bring Paul down to the council as if going to inquire something more precise concerning him. However, you should not be persuaded by them. For more than forty men from among them set an ambush, set an ambush for him, who have taken a vow upon themselves neither to eat nor to drink until when they would kill him. And now they are ready, expecting a promise from you. Reading the pages of Flavius Josephus, who was a first-hand witness of many of the events in Judea at this very time, one can fully understand the lawless nature of the people who would flagrantly disregard Roman law in order to achieve their own political objectives. We have seen members of this same race, the offspring of those Judeans who, who rejected Christ and who are called Jews today, act in this same volatile manner all throughout history. The bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Recent manifestations are the social uprisings and the violent acts committed by Jewish thugs in the United States throughout the 60s and 70s. And the Jewish media glorified those Jewish thugs. Groups such as the Weather Underground or the Chicago 7, who were nearly all Jews, in ancient Judea, just as it was in Europe 200 years ago and in America today, those who perpetrated such violence prevailed as a chastisement of the people of God. The Jews are, with all certainty, the people of the devil. Jerusalem was destroyed because the people rejected Christ. America faces that same fate today. If we truly believed Christ, if Christians truly believed Christ, then they should reject the Jews just as Christ did. Verse 22. Therefore the commander released the young man, instructing him to divulge to no one that these things have been made manifest to me. And summoning a certain two of the centurions, he said, Prepare two hundred soldiers that they may go as far as Caesarea, and seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen. By the third hour of the night, and beasts at hand, in order that Paul, being mounted upon them, arrived safely to Felix the governor. The justness and the prudence of this commander 
are fully manifest in his actions as they are described here. Where he both trusted the report of Paul's nephew and went to great lengths to preserve Paul from the wickedness of the Judeans. The distance from Caesarea to Jerusalem was approximately 75 miles. And it was a march of several days on foot. Under forced marches, a distance of 25 miles in a day was the most that the Roman legions were expected to cover. We shall see towards the end of the chapter that the foot soldiers did not cover the entire journey, but only went part of the way, as the cavalry alone escorted Paul most of the way to Caesarea. While Roman couriers on horseback covered as many as 50 miles in a day, a carriage on Roman roads seems to have normally covered 25 to 30. Felix, or by his full Latin name, Marcus Antonius Felix, was the Roman procurator of Judea from apparently 52 A.D. through 59 A.D., when he was recalled, or until 59 A.D., when he was recalled to Rome before the end of his last term, over a dispute between the Judeans and the Syrians of Caesarea, in which he was accused of certain injustices. He succeeded Ventidius Cumanus, who was not mentioned in Acts, and he was succeeded by Porcius Festus, who appears in Acts chapters 24 through 26. All of these men are frequently mentioned by Flavius Josephus, and appear in other Roman records or on artifacts such as coins. At this time, this Felix was married to a daughter of Herod Agrippa I, a woman named Drusilla, who is mentioned in Acts chapter 24, verse 24. She would have been at least a half-sister to Herod Agrippa II, the Herod Agrippa who appears here in Acts as well in these later chapters. Felix is said to have divorced his first wife in order to marry this Edomite Jewess. And according to Josephus, she was killed in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. Felix survived. He wasn't there. In book 20 of his Antiquities of the Judeans, in chapters 7 and 8, Josephus describes Felix as a greedy and a ruthless man given to committing murder, extortion, and also prone to bribery. Therefore, Felix could not be expected to have been friendly to Paul. As a side note, as for the names of the men, as the names of men often have significance in the Old Testament, it seems that they also do here. In Latin, Felix means happy. And Festus, his successor, Festus means joyous. Such are the men who so corruptly ruled Judea as it was about to be destroyed. From Psalm 130, from, I'm sorry, from Psalm 37, from verse 12. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes upon him with his teeth. Yahweh shall laugh at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Yahweh our God must be laughing at the Jews 
even to this very day. Verse 25. He, meaning the commander, wrote a letter having this outline. And and I'd like to say that the 3rd century papyrus, P48, has a lengthy interpolation here I would like to read. It has this verse to say, For he feared lest seizing him the Judeans should kill him, and he meanwhile would be accused as if receiving money. They made the man out to be worried about not the life of Paul, but about being accused of taking bribes so that the Judeans could kill him. And he wrote a letter to them which was written, Claudius Lucius, to the most noble governor Felix, greeting, This man, having been seized by the Judeans, and being about to be killed by them, appearing with the soldiers, I delivered him, learning that he is a Roman. The 3rd century papyrus P48 has claiming to be a Roman. And wishing to discover the reason by which they accused him, I brought him down to their council, and the Codex Vaticanus misses that phrase, which I found accusing him concerning inquiries, concerning inquiries of their law, and having not one accusation worthy of death or of bonds. Unless Paul had broken some Roman law that made him liable of a capital offense, he could not be justly executed. Like Gallio in Corinth, who we saw in Acts chapter 18, Lucius here finds nothing wrong with the Judeans having disputes over their own peculiar philosophy. And he rather sought to protect Paul from wrongdoers. Gallio also didn't want to hear the internal disputes of the Judeans. Gallio cared for none of these things. Luke, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 18. Verse 30. Then that there would be a plot against the man, this is the, 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 the rest of Claudius Lucius's letter, then that there would be a plot against the man having been disclosed to me, at once I sent him to you, also instructing the accusers to speak against him before you. That there are several differences amongst the various manuscripts in this passage I won't even get into. The notes will be posted with the podcast at Christagenia. So then the soldiers, in accordance with that being appointed them, taking up Paul, led him by night into Antipatris. Antipatris was a town built by the first Herod and named for his father. At this time it was evidently used as a Roman military outpost. The town was destroyed in an earthquake in the 4th century. Antipatris is over halfway to Caesarea from Jerusalem, near the southeast edge of the plain of Sharon, a distance of 45 miles away. Perhaps led him by night to Antipatris would have been a better translation, because it is not necessary from that statement to imagine that the Roman soldiers had actually arrived in Antipatris by morning. That would have been an impossible task. 
And the Christogonian New Testament needs to be emended in this respect. The word, the Greek preposition ice, may have also been rendered even better as towards Antipatris, or taking up Paul led him by night for Antipatris. In other words, headed in that direction. This being understood, Luke's Greek does not insist, and many other Bible commentators imagine this, that they arrived in Antipatris that same night which is basically impossible. By no means could they have ever covered 45 miles overnight. Roman soldiers on forced marches were expected to cover a distance of about 25 miles in a day. They're not going much slower travel in the dark of night. They're not going to cover twice the expected distance in less time. When I translated the Christogenian New Testament... I did not have good geographical tools, let's put it that way. And upon morning, permitting the horsemen to depart with him, they returned to the encampment. How far they actually traveled on the road of Antipatris overnight before the arrival of morning is immaterial. With daylight coming, as soon as the cavalry could see any imminent danger, they were comfortable traveling without the aid of the foot soldiers, who then returned to the fortress in Jerusalem. Traveling at a normal pace, it would take the cavalry a couple of days to reach Antipatris and then go on to Caesarea, 75 miles away. Verse 33 who entering into Caesarea and giving forth the letter to the governor, presented Paul to him also. And having read it, and asking which province he is from, and learning that he is from Calicia, I shall be your hearer, he said, when your accusers also arrive, giving orders to keep him in the headquarters of Herodotus. And the headquarters of Herodotus would be the headquarters of Herod Agrippa. Paul's being from Calicia, Felix was assured that he had the authority to hear his defense, and that Paul had a right to be heard by him. Herodotus is a reference to Herod Agrippa II, who at this time had a kingdom consisting of Chalkis, which was actually in Syria, and parts of Galilee and Parahia to the north of Judea. But Herod Agrippa II also had interests in Judea. He was appointed to supervise the business at the temple in Jerusalem. That's how he had the power to make and, and, and to unseat high priests. And therefore he had offices in this city of Caesarea, which was of course Caesarea Maritima on the coast and it was the Roman provincial capital. In later statements in Acts and in Paul's letters, it is evident that Paul was probably not arrested alone. But more than likely, Timothy and Aristarchus the Macedonian were arrested along with him. Either that situation is true, 
and Luke only focuses on Paul, the central figure, or Timothy and Aristarchus the Macedonian are arrested not long from this time, we see that in, in the epistle to the Hebrews, Paul writes that Timothy had just been released. Paul writes that epistle to the Hebrews while he is here under arrest in Caesarea. Aristarchus the Macedonian, Aristarchus, Luke mentions when Paul sent to Rome, Luke mentions Aristarchus as being a fellow prisoner. Aristarchus is still imprisoned and he is sent to Rome along with Paul. We're just not given all the details. Yahweh willing, we shall be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren and Pragmatic Genesis Part 10 explaining to Seed Line. We will be here next Friday with Acts chapter 24. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh and good night.